Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and for this July 4th week, we are throwing it back to the episode I recorded with the brilliant Mindy Kaling just over two years ago. Mindy and I spoke in June of 2019, just as her movie Late Night, co-starring the great Emma Thompson, was hitting theaters. This was back in the days when we were doing all of these interviews in studio, and I can confirm that Mindy was the first and only guest to arrive with a full-on entourage, including hair and makeup people. But once we sat down in the booth and started talking, she really revealed more about herself than I expected, including how her early days at the office influenced the complicated gender politics of her new movie, and why she was forced to turn down her dream job at Saturday Night Live. I also asked Mindy a question about Aziz Ansari that I worried might upset her in some way. To her credit, she actually thanked me after the taping was over for asking it, and said she was surprised that no one else had. Mindy, who you can hear in the voice cast of Monsters at Work, streaming tomorrow, July 7th on Disney+, also previewed her teen comedy Never Have I Ever, which at that point had yet to premiere on Netflix. The second season is now set to arrive next Thursday, July 15th. All right, I hope you enjoyed this episode, especially if you missed it the first time around, and we will be back with an all-new episode next week. Here's me with Mindy Kaling. You don't like listening to yourself in headphones? No, I think I'll like it too much, and then I'll be (laughs) like, whoa. I sound cool. Well, yeah. Thanks for uh, for coming in. Um, I've had kind of an insane uh, couple of weeks promoting the movie, traveling around. You were in New York last week, right? Yes, I was in New York and here. I'm used to it, I think. Between every season of The Mindy Project, it was like before the show would start. And then at the finale, I would do the same sort of thing. And then when I started doing movies like Ocean's 8 and Wrinkle in Time, there was this whole other level of like international junkets where I'd yeah. go to London or three days of junket press and L.A. So I've, I've gotten sort of slowly used to it. Well, I, I loved the movie uh, Late you. Night. Um, I got to see it at the L.A. premiere uh, a couple of weeks ago and just and thought it was so fun. I wish I had gotten to go to Sundance and see it because that seemed like that was very exciting. As anyone who listens to this show or, or reads my you know writing on The Daily Beast I have a particular obsession with late night TV and kind of the history of it and everything, the changes in it. Um, so I, I love just getting to be in that world in the in the movie. Were you a late night TV fan before you uh, started Definitely. on this project? Definitely. I was an intern at Conan O'Brien when I was 19, and that came after being truly an obsessed fan of, of his show, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, yeah. that came out when I was like 13. So I watched that when he was 13, 14, 15 years old. And then finally, when I was a sophomore, or maybe I know it was a freshman winter at Dartmouth, I got an internship, a writer's, to be a writer's intern at his show. And that was, to this day, the most glamorous experience I've ever had. And in the, in the film, um, the late night host is played by Emma Thompson. Mm-hmm. Um, so did it, did it start with you wanting to 
work with her and write something for her to start with the, this idea of a, a female late night host, which I know she's described as a, a science fiction uh, character in the film. It was the merging of two of my distinct interests. I love late night TV and, you know, obviously I read the Bill Carter books about it mm -hmm. and just was so uh, obsessed with it. And then when Conan took over The Tonight Show, that that whole thing that that took place over three or four months, that was incredibly interesting to me too. So uh, there's that interest of mine. Then there was my love from the age of like 11 or 12 of Emma Thompson, mm -hmm. who I saw in first in Much Do About Nothing. And I remember being dragged to go see that with my parents and thinking, I don't, I don't know anything about Shakespeare, but I think it's going to be boring. <laughs> Why do I have to see this? And then thinking it was so funny and Emma Thompson was so inc incredibly witty and beautiful. And then from then on, I think I've seen everything that she's done. I then saw her in Dead Again, Peter's Friends, and then obviously everything after that, including Junior, Stranger Than Fiction. I mean, I have really seen everything she's done. And so the the, the, the movie was kind of a merging of those two ideas where I was I was – really love the idea of a late night talk show host because I'd studied so many of the personalities and frankly that of any kind of sitcom star or big television personality. And I thought, well, who would I want to write this for? And I didn't really want to write it for a man. I wanted to write it for a woman mm -hmm. and Emma seemed like the perfect person. So yeah, I think it it creates this really unique dynamic in the film um, with this, uh, you know, older female late night host and this room of all mostly younger men, white men writers. Was that something that interested you too? kind of creating that dynamic that obviously has not existed that much with these, you know, a, a powerful woman at the head of a show like this? Yeah, I think that the, the writer's room that's in the movie is a real reflection of what many of the variety TV writer's room look like until recently. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Emma is the host, I mean, in Emma's own words, it is science fiction that she would have this type of show. But for that character, Catherine, who broke through all these obstacles and barriers to get this, it felt the most believable, uh, per particularly with her personality, that she would try to you know, keep the formula of what has worked in other shows and keep it for herself. I mean, that was that was one of the fascinating things about her her sort of philosophy which as a feminist because i think she would identify as a feminist is she she thinks because i've broken through that is my contribution mm -hmm. i don't have to bring up anyone behind me because i'm someone that they can look up to and frankly that's enough and there's many people who would argue that that is enough i personally don't and you can tell that from mm -hmm. the movie but i think that that is something that a lot of pioneers feel like i not only do i have to be successful myself and be a role model. I also have to be doing all this other stuff. And so I I have been fascinated with that kind of argument because that's something that I had to learn coming up in the business mm -hmm. was in mature and think about my changing role. But that was really long-winded way of answering your <laughs> asking, answering your very simple question. Well, so your character in the film, Molly, comes into this writer's room. She's the only woman, the only woman of color in this, this writer's room. And I know that you've talked a lot about how that mirrors in some way your experience coming into the office and mm -hmm. being a diversity hire and in the in the film she's a diversity hire. So how did you approach, you know, saying how much you wanted to mirror your own experience or or kind of change it and make it something different on screen? Well, and I'm glad you brought that up. I had a wonderful time at the office and and I had so many mentors who came from that, but it is true that I I was the only woman, I was the only minority writer on the show and I was terrified. And I have not had an opportunity in 
the Mindy Project or the office to really examine that feeling of mm-hmm. being the only person. And so the movie felt like a really a great place to explore it. I'm forgetting the second part of your question. The question was... Well, then how did you... Did you want to just kind of show what that was like for you coming into the office or how did you want to, to make it different or, or, or bring yeah. something different to it? I thought that to me, to, to make it more cinematic, I felt it would be... I, I felt that she needed to have more obstacles than I did because I think that really reflects the experience of people who are not like me. I was lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and to uh, and being a comedy writer is well paid. But if you're watching this movie and you don't make as much money as a comedy writer and you are not as welcomed as I was on The Office by like woke men who went to Ivy League schools, mm-hmm. then I felt like this I needed to make the movie more to reflect the experience of other people that I know and that are out there. I don't know. Maybe I should just move back to Pennsylvania. Can I give you some advice? You need to shut up. Excuse me? If you hear something you don't agree with, you have to resist the urge to give your opinion. I will not be marginalized by the iron fist of white privilege that pervades this work environment. I am not trying to silence your strong female Indian woman of color spirit. Hashtag me too. Trans is beautiful. Blah, blah, blah. You're still a new writer with no experience. You need to stop giving advice and write something. You're a writer, so write. I think a lot of people probably don't know what a diversity hire is. Can you explain what that is and what it meant for you and in, in your experience? Sure. Well, what the diversity hire phrase meant to me when I was in 2004, when I was hired on the office, was it's a very specific program, which is the program of at NBC was that if you had a show and you hired a minority writer to be a staff writer on the show, NBC would foot the bill of the salary of that writer. So it didn't come out of the budget for the show. And so you would have all these NBC shows that would have a staff writer who was a minority. And everyone knows that the, one of the reasons why they're a good candidate to be on a show is because they're for free. So you get this feeling in the business, it's first of all a wonderful program, but I was so embarrassed to be part of it because mm-hmm. to me it felt like, oh God, is the only reason why people think I'm here is because I'm a minority. And you see this giant turnover of these minority writers year after year because if they don't pan out, they'll just get somebody new because they're free. And um, the minute you are promoted, the show has to start paying your salary. So if you become a story a story editor, which is the next highest level bumping, they will, you have to pay. So you see that a lot of these staff writers are fired. Mm -hmm. So that's what the program was for me. And um, that's what specifically what the NBC program was at the office. But in in the show, I think diversity hire means, I think what it means all over America, which is someone is hired to make it seem that the employers and maybe even the corporate culture of a certain company is being politically correct. That's kind of like the pejorative connotation of diversity hire. And in the movie, there's a debate over whether comedy is a meritocracy. And I think Emma Thompson's character makes that argument. How do you feel about that? Where do you stand on the, the question of, is it, a, is it a meritocracy? Can anyone who is funny enough succeed? Or is that sort of simplifying the reality of, of the so comedy world? I used to think that. I used to think that. And I was wrong. And I used to think that in my 20s that comedy was a meritocracy because I thought, well, look, look at me. I've made it. And that must mean you, you can fall into this trap when you're a, uh, a minority in a place that's predominantly white. And you think, well, if I was able to make it, then they're probably just taking the very best people because, you know, and then realizing that that isn't the case actually is an acknowledgement that you maybe aren't that special. So 
that was uh, took a real maturing for me to realize that yes you can be funny but if you don't have the same access like when i was coming up to do doing stand up in new york city of which i did for a very very short amount of time but mm. i most of the late night uh, most of the like the open mics were run by white stand ups and they would put their friends in it and there were typically other white male stand ups with uh, an occasional black comedian. And this is in the early 2000s, like, you know, 2001, 2002. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't, if you weren't sleeping with the right guy or <laughs> flirting with the right guy or they didn't find you, like, attractive, even if you were funny, there was literally no way to get access into those open mics. And that has changed a huge amount. But it's um, – so I basically – it isn't a meritocracy because if you can't have access, even if you are talented, there's no way of being seen. And that took a long time for me to realize. Do you Not think, a long time. It took me about five years to realize. Do you think in the comedy scene in general, I mean, you said it's changed. Do you think there's more just sort of, I don't know whether pressure is the right word, but sort of, yeah, I mean, pressure to include more different types of people in these in these shows, whether it's open mics or... Yeah, because or, now or, diversity yeah. is cool, right? <laughs> yeah. Diversity is cool. The best shows on TV feature either women or people of color in prominent roles. Your Atlantas, Insecures, Shrill, you know. Um, so... 15. So a lot of the shows that people really like are now um, doing that. So of, of course, there's going to be more access and it's and it seems like you are behind the times if you have a, you know, all white stand up set in the Lower East Side at your venue, you know, mm -hmm. or even an all white writer's room or an all white panel of comedians talking about industry or showrunners. So I think that's been one of the great things of the past couple of years is that there's been rapid change and rapid green lighting of shows that start people that you wouldn't necessarily have seen years before. Yeah. I mean, the, the irony is that late night TV, especially network late night TV, is one of the few places, I guess, that still is so, you know, just all white guys. Well, it's interesting, right? Because it's this job that it's this job where unlike other jobs in TV, because you have a show on TV, if you're lucky, it goes you know, six or seven seasons. And then there's the rare show that goes like 11 seasons, like mm -hmm. Modern Family, Cheers, that kind of thing. The Office went nine years. But uh, with the late night TV host, it's like you're a monarch. You just have the show until you die. <laughs> lifetime appointment. Lifetime appointment. You're Supreme Court justice. <laughs> That's what it's like, unless you like really fuck it up. Yeah. So there is, um, there is, there hasn't been the opportunity. Now, I think that once, in, and I actually, I, I love Jimmy Fallon. I love Stephen Colbert. Um, I love Jimmy Kimmel. I think what they're doing is so funny um, and they're so consistently funny. And, and I know the hard work it takes to go into there. When one of them decides to retire, I'm 100% sure that the person that replaces them will be a woman and even more likely a, per, a person of color. Yeah, I mean, but even it's you know a few years ago, you know James Corden, great as well, but he he came on just a few years ago, and everyone thought maybe that that, that slot, slot would go. could have been to something. Yeah. That's a really good point. I mean, Lily Singh is a really exciting addition to that. Yeah, um, I know it's like the one thirty slot, but she's going to I think bring so much visibility to it that will um, I think that is that is going to make a lot of noise, and she's so talented and has an audience that I don't think traditionally stays up late to necessarily watch those shows. And she's going to be so refreshing and uh, bring a huge new wave of interest into late night TV, I think. Was that ever a job that interested you? I don't know if anyone ever asked you to do to a job a, like that. A or late night a, talk show? Yeah. What's funny, when you go on the shows, it's so 
fun. The experience of being on those shows is so fun and they treat you so well and you feel so famous. And it's the kind of thing where when you were younger, you would watch those guests and you get to look so pretty and so glamorous. But it's incredibly difficult job. And I'm sure you know this. Yeah. And it's a lot of drudgery as well, you know, and there's a tedium that's part of it that I think is really challenging. And it's also the amount of output you have to be doing every single day is way more than you do in the sitcom world or really any other thing, this daily grind of of a huge amount of material that you have to go through and sketches and comedy bits and funny talk show anecdotes and a comedic monologue that has to make you laugh solidly for five minutes. I mean, it's mm. really, really so much work. So I really admire those guys for doing it. And I don't know that I would ever be able to. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, you know, from everything you've been doing recently, especially that you like doing a lot of different things and you have a lot of different projects uh, in the works. Um, this summer, you have Four Weddings and a Funeral coming mm -hmm. up on Hulu. What drew you to that project to remake Four Weddings and a Funeral? Was that a movie that you loved uh, I never, as a kid? If I never would have done it if it hadn't been um, brought to me, mm -hmm. you know, because I think that movie's perfect. I think the movie's perfect. I think the script that Richard Curtis wrote is so funny. It was this rare thing of finding a cast of characters that were so, so funny and had such good chemistry with each other. And then this script, which was hilarious. I loved it. And when I, when my manager first brought it up to me that MGM was looking to adapt it into a show, I thought, no, absolutely not. This is, doesn't make any sense. And my manager, Howard Klein said, well, you know, they did this with Handmaid's Tale and Fargo. So there has been some real success with mm -hmm. it, just not comedic. And I thought, well, that is an interesting challenge, but that isn't enough to make me want to do it. But I thought, thought, I said, let me think about it because that is compelling. What Noah Hawley has done and Bruce Miller has done with their with Handmaid's and Fargo has been great because those are shows that are so their own. And I love the movie Fargo, but I love the, the show Fargo too. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And I then I thought about it and I said, well, if I was going to do my take on Four Weddings of the Funeral, I would want to make it so different than the movie while capturing what was the essence of what, what people really liked about it. So because I'm not really in a place in my career where I, I feel like it's that interesting for me to be trying to guess what Richard Curtis's voice is like and try to write in his style. And mm. I don't even think I could do it because he's such a good writer. So I said, I said to myself, I love London. I am like such an Anglophile. I love, I would, I love British comedians, as you know, because of late night yeah. and working on The Office. Obviously, I love British comedians and I know a lot about it. And I think I would really like to do this if it was people that didn't necessarily look like they were in the original movie mm -hmm. as the two leads and the cast to be a really modern like Mindy Kaling type show. And that's what we did. Cool. I think, and you also have a Netflix series that you're working on that I think a little bit less is known about that. I know it's been described as a coming of age show. Um, what has that process been like putting that together with more of a, you know, full, wholly original idea? Thanks. So. It's been the Netflix show, which I'm creating with Lang Fisher, who's a writer who worked with me on The Office and then worked on 30 Rock before that. She, I mean, she worked with me on the mini project. She, that is a, a really fun show about an Indian American teenager. And the most fun part of it was that we did this open casting call mm -hmm. because we wanted to see who the actresses were outside of just the, you know, greater Los Angeles area. And we got 15,000 responses to it. 
And I have seen hundreds and hundreds of young girls audition for this part and some of the other parts, which are also Indian and Indian American. We finally, you know, we've narrowed down the casting and it's it's been one of the most uniquely rewarding things to just, because that's, if I was that age and I had seen an open casting call, I just, you know, you I had no access to it. And so that's been really fun is seeing the excitement of kids who are actually making a connection with me and with Lang and with Netflix. And I, I just feel so lucky to be able to be kind of in the center of it. And is it um, sort of based on your uh, your childhood growing up or how are you approaching it like that? Well, so it was announced as a you know reflection of my childhood, but I was not really interested in doing a nostalgia piece. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do something set in the 80s and 90s and in Boston. I mean, I might do something like that later in my life. But and I also think Fresh Off the Boat does that really well because mm-hmm. um, that is roughly the time period that I grew up in, and it's an Asian lead. And so I thought, I, I really wanted to do a teenager who is growing up now, because I am obsessed with it. I think also because I have a daughter, I think that was more interesting to me mm-hmm. is seeing her with like cell phones and her friends and studying that world is already so fascinating to me that I. I I kind of am, was more excited to write it about like a Generation Z. I don't know mm. if that's even the right term for how old for that generation. Have you been talking to a lot of teenagers to get their uh, we have their my perspective? Friend, my friend Charlie Grandy has a 15 year old daughter, and uh, Lang paid her 50 bucks just to send us an email that just had like a list of terms that she used <laughs> and things that kids her age loved. So yeah, it's, what, is there anything that you learned that, uh, that stands out, uh, that you, that you didn't know before she, you, this we, process? she has not sent us the email yet of, oh, okay. uh, of everything, but yeah, it, that deep dive into that age group of what they're interested in and the videos that they like to make and everything's so fleeting, right? So I, we're always worried, okay, we'll put this in this. And then by the time the show airs in a year, they'll be like, that's so lame now. <laughs> so that's been really, really fun, but also terrifying of like trying to figure out which are the things that we think can last long enough for the, like, the show to air to put into scripts. Coming up, Mindy speaks out for the first time about the backlash she received when she praised Aziz Ansari on Instagram. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. You can hear so many other great conversations, including a hilarious deep dive into The Office with Brian Baumgartner, a.k.a. Kevin Malone, as well as fascinating episodes with Mindy Kaling's fellow writers on that show, Mike Schur and Larry Wilmore. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can hear those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Mindy Kaling. I know you've talked about this a little bit before, too, but the decision to kind of keep that side of your life private, unlike a lot of other celebrities, I think, who I see posting, you know, videos and photos of their kids constantly on Mm -hmm. on Instagram. And you do have a very large uh, social media following as well. How do you navigate, um, you know, what to keep public and what to keep private in your in your life? I think I think it's really simple because it my family is so small. It's just me and my daughter. And there's so much of my life that is public that I don't mind sharing that it it feels strange to me to have something that isn't just for us, just mm-hmm. the two of us. And I also think when I see a lot of celebrities and their kids and they put pictures of them on Instagram and talk about them on Twitter and videos, and I have no judgment of it, I just think it's weird that if I were to ever see them in the airport, I would know them. I mm. would know the kid and be say their name. Like I, I know them. And I think that that must be a really weird feeling as a child to know that people know you that you've never met. Yeah, and I think a lot of people feel like they know those those people and know their their kids yeah. just because they're they're constantly getting, you know, updates of them on their phones. Yeah, and in trying to protect I loved I love my childhood. I love the way my relationship with my parents and the way that I was raised and that if that's just one thing that can that would make it much less like my childhood then I'm trying to avoid it. Yeah. I I don't think it's necessarily healthy for people to know you or think they know you when they've never met you. Yeah. I mean, I think there there are so many pitfalls in social media and, and sort of dangers. And one thing um, that I know you experienced not too long ago is you got some some backlash after you posted a ticket stub uh, from Aziz Ansari's uh, stand-up show. And, you know, you were just saying that you enjoyed the show and yeah. it got a lot of... Uh, were, were you surprised by the sort of response that that, well, that got? I just want to make a little correction, which is that I got a lot of, you said you got a lot of backlash. The truth is that there was like a lot of pickup of mm. some comments when a majority of the comments about it were how much they loved disease yeah. and how excited they were to see him. But as with anything on the internet, um, three people can seem like an army when it's amplified. Right. So the truth was that so many people on that thing were so excited that Aziz was was coming back and doing stand-up and they were saying how excited they were for Master of None. And What's so interesting about that is that Aziz is my friend, obviously, and I think he's such a great comedian. And I know so much about what was happening. But one of the most amazing things about that stand-up show is that he really talked about that situation in a really vulnerable way. And it was one of the reasons why I wanted to post about it because I thought it was just really bold and honest and admirable. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, from I have I don't know him personally, but just from what I've read and seen of him talk about it, I've been really impressed by how he's addressed it in a public way, unlike a lot of other people who who haven't done that. Absolutely. And and it's and for him to do that 
and and this is not to to because so many people have such a personal reaction. So many young women had such a personal reaction, and and were writing about that. Like you know, if you support this, then you're erasing our story. And I um I. I truly have so much empathy and it's, it's a tricky thing, you know, yeah. like it's a tricky thing. I I don't think that by me supporting my friend who I think is a really wonderful person and a good person that that negates the power of these young women's stories. And I, um, I just wish people had been able to, because he really did, as you said, talked about it in a way where he learned so much from it in a way that other people don't. So yeah, that's my, my feeling about it. And I don't put that on anyone else or think anyone else needs to do anything. It's not, I, I that was, that's just my one woman's personal mm. story is how much I enjoyed a show, a show and I wanted to encourage other people to see it. Um, so in Late Night, there are some uh, Me Too themes and storylines, mm-hmm. although in kind of unexpected ways, and I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't <laughs> seen it. Um, but why was that something that you wanted to include? And were you, did it come from writing during this time when that's all anyone you know was really talking about? It's interesting. I, I've been writing this movie for almost four years. And um, there's one graphic in the movie that says hashtag me too. And that came much, much later. That was like in post-production of mm-hmm. the movie. So we'd already been in the whole me too era. But to me, I didn't write that storyline for Emma's character because I thought, oh, it would be timely. I wrote that storyline because that felt what would be true of a character her age whose husband did have Parkinson's disease and the toll that it did take on their marriage. I'm not now giving away a ton of spoilers, but, you know, you're not seeing this. It's not like, you know, Usual Suspects or something. Yeah. Like it's, not, it's, not <laughs> like, it's not like the whole movie is based on these suspenseful reveals. But I, I felt that the decisions that she made as a woman under those particular pressures felt like something very believable. And I talked a lot with Emma about it mm-hmm. because uh, to see what, you know, how she felt um, as someone who is obviously closer in age to the character of Catherine. And so that's why we wrote it. I didn't. What did she contribute in that sense? What, what did you hear from her? She, you know, it was such a great thing because it came from such excitement for her to be able to play a role like this, uh, a woman who is in her late 50s, but is still sexual, mm-hmm. you know, and is still sexually appealing and has appetites. And it's and I thought that that was I think she was really excited to play that part of the character, even if they were even if she made mistakes because it they're it felt true to her life. It felt true to the people that she knew of her own age. So I, I was, I also just don't see that very much. And so I, I thought that was, uh, it, it was like felt juicy and exciting to write about. Um, so as we kind of start to get towards the the second half of our of the show here, um, what I like to do is kind of go back and go through some of uh, some bigger moments or highlights from from your career that that I particularly love and see if there's a. A memory or a story that kind of jumps out um, okay. when I mentioned. I love them. it. Um, so you mentioned uh, starting your your internship at Late Night mm-hmm. uh, with with Conan O'Brien. Um, what what do you remember about? Uh, or is there is there a certain memory that jumps out when you think about that time when you were very young, <laughs> working on the show? Yeah, I was nineteen. I remember thinking I had almost no interactions during the day with any of the writers or with Conan himself. If and so there would be. You know, ninety six percent of the time, I was just photocopying scripts and running them to different floors and different mm-hmm. departments and things like that. But there would be a, 
a, this very small percentage where you would be like in the elevator with Conan going from two different floors from the stages to the writer's offices. And that Look, looking way up, uh... looking way up at Conan, who's obviously, you know, six, five or something. And I remember thinking those instances and I never would strike up conversation with him or anything because I was too shy. And I also knew like, why would he want to talk to me, the stupid intern? And so, but I remember th those were the moments I lived for, even though they were nonverbal. You know, even just being in the elevator with a couple of the writers, it was it was so I just loved that show so much and thought it was so absurd and so intellectual and so funny that those moments were really uh, thrilling for me. And I believe that show was also your first uh, late night guest, uh, the first late night yeah, show you were a guest on. So what, so what was that like to come back for the first time as a guest? Oh, it's. It was horror. And I did badly. <laughs> I did really badly on the show. And um, I really wanted to kill. But, you know, when you're 25 and I was on the office for a season and they were kind enough to even have me come be on the show, um, I it's hard to kill. It, it's really hard to do well on those shows until you really feel comfortable. I, I've done probably over 60 of them at this point, And I still do badly all the time. Um, it's really nervous, nervous making to be backstage like that. And, um, but, and I remember like I, my dress was weird and bad. I didn't like everything about that experience when I, when I first <laughs> met Wacken Conan and I was just so nervous. Um, well, you seemed a lot more confident, uh, in your most recent late night appearance on, uh, Colbert when his, uh, when his <laughs> Apple watch went off, uh, and you kind of, uh, gave him some shit for that. That yeah, was funny. The, yeah, that was so funny. He, Stephen Colbert has been such a has been I mean I really I love his show I love the monologue I love how he is in interviews he just did this interview with the New York Times I don't know if you read it mm -hmm, but yep. it was so jaw-droppingly deep yeah like he just so thoughtful and he's yeah so smart and he's been through so much and he talks about the loss of his father and his brothers and his effect with comedy but then also he is like I think he is like a, I think he's like a part-time pastor or something. Anyway, I I've never met someone who is so different than me in almost any way, but with whom I feel I have a great friendship with. And I he came on my show, uh, the Mindy Project, uh, in between the Colbert Report and this and his new show. And I he didn't have to do that. He had no t he has you know the first time he had a break in forever. And I will never forget it. And I love going on a show. I, it's so fun. Coming up, Mindy looks back at her first on-screen appearance on The Office and also reveals why she had to turn down her dream job on SNL. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. So I also want to talk about your first uh, on-screen appearance on The Office, which was in episode two, mm -hmm. Diversity Day, mm -hmm. um, when you slapped uh, Michael Scott. And that's kind of a, an iconic moment. <laughs> Ah, uh, all right. What? Okay. Kelly, how are you? I just have the longest me hanging. Oh, welcome to my convenience store. Would you like some googie googie? 
Oh, I have some very delicious googie googie. Only 99 cents plus tax. Try my googie googie. Try my googie googie. Try my googie googie. Try my. Were you were you nervous? What do you remember about shooting that uh, that scene with Steve Carell? I was so nervous because I really slapped him. It wasn't like <laughs> it we wasn't did. a fake slap. No, it wasn't a fake slap. And I and I really slapped him. And it, I was so nervous because it was also my first time on screen because it was episode two. Yeah, and. I, it was unexpected that I would even be on camera and I was thrilled, obviously, but I had to slap Steve when he was being his most funny, like (laughs) his impression was so obnoxious, but so over the top and so funny to me that I just said to myself, like, I cannot mess this up. Uh, And I had to, I just, just slap him across the face. So it was, um, it, it was incredibly nerve wracking to do that. Um, do you have a Do you have a favorite episode that you wrote of The Office when you think? Oh back? wow! Okay, great question. Well, my favorite episode. Well, I really the experience. Okay, so there is how the episode was received, and there is how much fun it was to do. And sometimes mm-hmm. when they come out, you kind of conflate the two. Yeah, because you love the praise. <laughs> but so the truth is I loved writing. I wrote a bunch of Christmas episodes. Mm-hmm. I wrote probably four Christmas episodes and I loved writing those because they would always ship in fake snow to put in front of Dunder Mifflin. And those were- so our, You could feel like you were back at home. Back at home. And those were actually our offices, the ones that the they used as the exterior. That's mm-hmm. where the writer's building was and the editing building. So they bring in snow and so we would always get to play in it. And for BJ <laughs> Novak and I, who was from Boston, that, those episodes are really special. And they were received really well. And Michael Scott's just like one of those characters who he was so boyish and so emotional that Christmas meant a lot to him still <laughs> as like a 43-year-old man. Um, but the probably – so I loved writing those episodes and as – as a, as a Hindu, I <laughs> I was thought like this is so funny that I love writing these episodes uh, with uh, so many Jewish comedy writers that we just love these Christmas episodes so much. But then the injury season two, the injury episode is probably the one that I had the most fun writing because it was so strange. Like Dwight's personality changed. He crashed his car, and he he was friends with Pam for the episode, and it was an issues oriented one. It was the one where Michael grilled his foot. Yep, it's classic. And I. He I, likes to make bacon uh, in the in the morning. Yeah, he yeah. has this insane monologue that was so fun to write about his morning routine, about how he loves to <laughs> loves to rise to the smell of cooked, cooked <laughs> bacon, but because he doesn't have a butler, he has to do it himself. And he's so um, Steve's performance of that is so uh, I don't know what it's sort of petulant and so funny, like. Like, yeah, this is so this everyone should be doing this. This is completely it is weird that you think I'm weird is his attitude. And then the episode spins into this, you know, whenever you got to write a great conference room scene that Michael led mm-hmm. about an issue, you were so excited. Yeah. So whether it was about fat shaming or, or about disabilities or, you know, being gay, like if you got to write that and that was in your episode, it, you were like thrilled to go away and write that. So that <laughs> it had a lot of different things that I I really enjoyed. It also had him falling off the toilet and asking Ryan to help him <laughs> get off the toilet. And, and Ryan said he was dead. Or no, Toby said that Ryan, Mike, Ryan was dead. So that, that was like a really weird, a weird one, an early weird one. Um, how do you, you know, how do you explain the this intense popularity of the show on streaming um, to this day? You know, I think it's like it's almost getting more popular by the year I, um, with people. I, I, I don't. I mean, 
It's just, um, I guess it's so funny when people say why they like like The Office and they always mention their favorite character. I've noticed 100% of the time, no one ever says Michael Scott. They always say some other character. And I think it's because Michael feels like the uncreative answer because mm-hmm. he's just the star and he's so funny. And I think that that is, to me, has always signaled why the show is a success because you are finding these other characters that are funny because it just goes without saying that the lead is just so great. And so I think Steve's performance in that particular role, how much heart he had, you know, he cried almost every episode. It (laughs) felt like he took everything so personally. And the stories were really relatable. Like everything that we were going through was about raises and workplace bullying and workplace dynamics. And I think, I think people just like it. I also think it's just has tons of hard jokes you know, and it's really different than, and I I love all the, the new shows that have come up in the past three, four, five years, but uh, the half hour world now is really changing than what it used to be. Yeah. And so you have these really atmospheric, interesting shows that don't necessarily um, put the most emphasis on hard joke writing, but The Office is still from the episode 101 to like episode 922, like they, it was about hard jokes. And so I think that's, maybe enjoyable for some to to for kids to watch. Yeah. Uh one thing I didn't know before I started researching for this uh episode was um you spent I think I don't know if it was one week or longer as a guest writer on SNL. Yeah, I was there for 2 weeks. 2 weeks. So what was that like? That was I have so much respect for the SNL writers. The schedule is so grueling. Again, incredibly glamorous and <laughs> there's something yeah, really glamorous or about spending the entire night on, you know, I think it's Tuesday night mm. that you spend up all night writing it. But I have so much respect for them because it is so hard and you start from scratch every single week. And so I really, really love that experience. I thought the writers that I met there were fantastic. At that point, The Lonely Island had, it was because it was between seasons two and three of The Office. The Lonely Island had like really taken off. And I remember Akiva and Yorma and Andy were really nice to me. And I thought, uh, I just so admired what they did. And, you know, obviously at The Office, I think Michael Scott had loved it so much that they did a take on, was it, what did they do a parody of? They did a parody of at least one of the Lonely Island things because Michael loved comedy so much. <laughs> yeah. I think they did like Lazy Scranton. I think it was something, some belabored thing. <laughs> Sounds right. That Michael and Dwight did in the parking lot as like a cold <laughs> open. But I, I just remember the, thinking, being so surprised that those guys were so nice. And did you get anything on the show during those two weeks that, that uh, you remember enjoying? Yeah, I got um, one thing on an update. Will Forte played Chad Michael Murray and... And I think the things that I remember so well is hearing my sketches uh, just go like spectacularly badly in the, the like they would do the table read. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, even though it was so bad and I was so embarrassed on one level, it was also thrilling to write for Bill Hader, Kristen Wiig, and mm-hmm. like I think Antonio Banderas was the host. <laughs> that that was such an exciting feeling that that trumped the embarrassment that I felt about a, a sketch doing really badly. Um, oh. there, I wrote a sketch about Bill Hader being a pregnant cat. Um <laughs> And Antonio Banderas was his owner who like just loved him, her so much. And Bill was the cat. And it, it was it was so bad, but it was so it was so funny to see them having to read these parts. So I, I love that experience. And is it true that you uh, turned down a, a job offer to, to join SNL as a writer? Yeah, well, I between seasons, maybe it was after I was 
a writer there. Or was it before? Maybe it was before. It was before that. I had halfway through season two been invited to audition mm-hmm. for SNL. And I for the was cast. For the cast, but I was on contract with the office. And I sat down with Greg and he and I I said to him, like, it would be my dream to be a cast member on Saturday Night Live. And he's like, Will you have a job here? I don't understand why you want to leave. And I said, <laughs> I know it's just this is my childhood dream. And he said, Okay, if you go there and you get cast on Saturday Night Live, I will let you out of your contract. So I went there and I auditioned. And I remember Seth Myers was there. He was, Seth was watching. I'm sure there's other people, but I I don't I didn't recognize them. And afterwards, I had heard that Lauren wanted to offer me a job as a writer there, but not as a performer. And but there was some like hint that like you know at that point if I had stayed on long enough, like Jason Sudeikis, that I could mm-hmm. maybe graduate to be a performer. Mm-hmm. I mean that happens. That was dangled and to me, and I thought, well, that's pretty exciting. And so I went back and talked to Greg about it, and he said he said to me. He was like, no, that's not the deal we made. The deal we made is if you get cast as a writer, as a cast member, you can go. And it it was a really a life changing thing because I think my my course of my career would have gone very differently had I left the yeah. office and and done that instead. Yeah, but um, I mean, you know, of course, there's so many writer performers there. Like, look at Bill and his show Barry, which I think is the best show on TV. You know, they have a, fantastic careers, obviously, but it would have been, I think, very different. So no no regrets about uh, sticking with The Office? No, no regrets. <laughs> <laughs> Another early role uh, that you did, people might not know about, is you played uh, Richard Lewis's assistant on Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> and I know Larry David yes. is, a, is a hero of yours. Yes. So what was, uh, what was that like? Richard Lewis, is office. Larry David calling. Sure, what's this regarding? Uh, it's regarding um, his kidney transplant. What? It's regarding his kidney transplant. Mr. Lewis is getting a kidney transplant? What? What do you say? He didn't say anything to me about it. You didn't, you didn't know about this? What, are you kidding? Tell- he didn't tell you this? He didn't tell you he was getting with that... The problem with his kidneys? No, he didn't tell me anything. How could he not have told you about this? I don't know, but he didn't tell me anything about this. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, you asked me what it was regarding. I didn't know it was going to be about something like this. That was that was great. I was one episode. I think I was like, I think it was like 2005 or something. So it was like 25. I did one episode of that show, and it was. I mean, I've never been so nervous about anything than to be on set with Larry David and Richard <laughs> Lewis. And I remember I had to hug Larry at one point. And I remember being like, this guy's ripped. <laughs> Larry David's ripped. Like I hugged him and I was like, he has like a six pack. Like why? It's like, and I, I remember that was really surprising. But I remember having to improvise with the with the, both of them actually. And yeah, uh, the whole show is, is improvised for the most part. Right? You have the idea of what's going to happen in yeah. the scene and then have to improvise. So it was to me, I was really flattered to even be invited to be on the show, because if they invite you to come do it, then they already think you're like a funny enough improviser. And so, you know, I obviously love writers. I love writer performers. It's why I loved Emma Thompson. It's why I love Larry David. So uh, it was only two days, I think. So it wasn't a it wasn't a long experience, but it was. I, again, I was so nervous because I really wanted Larry David to think I was cool. And the final thing that we uh, that I ask everyone on this show is, um, can you think of the last thing that made you laugh really hard? You can think of it as a recommendation for listeners. It could be something you saw on TV, in a movie, 
um, live uh, in your life? The last thing that made me laugh really hard. Okay, there's two things. One is when Stephen Colbert's phone went off in the interview (laughs) with him. That made me laugh. That was very funny. I couldn't believe that his phone just started talking to him. That was one. The other was, is this episode of Barry that came out where he has to go kill this guy and I won't give spoilers. He has to go kill this guy because he's on assignment. And then the guy's daughter shows up, who's like a Taekwondo yeah, expert, and kicks his ass. And I <laughs> laughed so violently, violently <laughs> attacks him and the Stephen Root character on that. And I, I was, it was not only was it very funny, but it was incredibly surprising. So I, I love that show. I think Bill and Alec are are such a great writing pair and it's so unlike anything that either of them have done before. So I I think that partnership is really interesting too. But yeah, that show is is uh, really fantastic in like three different genres in one, which is so hard to do. Well, thank you, Mindy, so much for uh, being on the show today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much to Mindy Kaling. That was a really fun talk and hopefully we can get her on the podcast for another episode sometime down the line. You can hear Mindy's voice in Monsters at Work, premiering on Disney Plus tomorrow, July 7th. And check out Season 2 of Never Have I Ever, streaming on Netflix next Thursday, July 15th. And if you missed Late Night the first time around, it is available right now on Amazon Prime Video. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. <laughs>